Hello, and welcome to the Science in the City podcast, your gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences. I'm your host, Tamara Johnson. This podcast is about two subjects that probably show up on most people's favorite things list. Dinosaurs. Okay, maybe you don't think about them all the time now, but I bet you thought they were the coolest when you were a kid. And, drumroll, sex. It's kind of terrifying, hilarious, and awesome all at the same time to think about dinosaurs mating. I mean, really, how could they? Think of a stegosaurus. Impalings come to mind. Beyond the mechanics, the subject raises fascinating behavioral questions. For instance, how might dinosaurs have selected mates and what kind of parents were they? On a more epistemological note, how could we even try to answer questions like this? To tackle some of them for us, here is Brian Switek, author of the books My Beloved Brontosaurus and Written in Stone, Evolution, the Fossil Record, and Our Place in Nature. Brian is also a panelist in our upcoming event, Love and Lust in the Animal Kingdom, the next in our Science in the Seven Deadly Sins series. The event is on February 12th at 6.30, so get your tickets soon at scienceinthecity.org. To start off, how do we know anything at all about dinosaur sex? Well, uh, that, that, that's a really good question because uh, for a while we didn't really know much of anything. It wasn't really a topic that was uh, considered worthy of serious consideration. You know, um, Henry Fairfield Osborne, the uh, paleontologist who named uh, Tyrannosaurus rex you know, a century ago, you know, he looked at the tiny arms and said, well, maybe you know, the male sort of grasped or sort of tickled the, the female as they were copulating, but that's about as far as the science really went. And then later, uh, you know, paleontologists would speculate about um, sort of the various sexual positions that dinosaurs might, might have used, but that's basically just drawing pictures and just kind of imagining there wasn't really a whole lot of science to it. Um, but now, especially with the realization that birds are living dinosaurs, they're the dinosaurs that survived the end Cretaceous extinction, we're getting a lot more clues and a lot more sort of anatomical correlates that go with um, sexual behavior. Like one of the most fascinating things to me is that we can now sex dinosaurs under certain con conditions. This is something that um, researchers have been trying to do for a very long time. never really worked. They looked for something uh, called sexual dimorphism, basically a sort of physical difference between males and females. And this has been proposed for a lot of different species, but it's never really been uh, well supported. It seems that you know dinosaurs might not actually have any sexual dimorphism. But now, you can cut into a dinosaur's leg bone, and you can look at the bone microstructure. You can use really high-powered microscopes and really zoom in there, see the different kind of cell types, the certain vascularity, the certain um, sort of arrangement of all these different kind of vessels and bone cells. And sometimes, if you're lucky, you'll, you'll catch something called medullary bone. And birds lay this down when they're laying eggs. Female birds, as they're going through the egg-laying process, develop this very specific kind of bone in their leg bone. So if you find a dinosaur that has medullary bone, that you know it's a female and you know that she was pregnant. Medullary bone is a sort of a very ephemeral tissue. It only shows up for a short period of time during the actual egg-laying process. It doesn't really leave a marker in, in the bone that you can tell, okay, this female had, uh, you know, uh, or laid a nest on this year, this year, and this year during her life cycle. But um, by using the, that bone tissue and the rings called uh, lines of arrested growth or lags, and uh, what they're assumed to be are a yearly sort of season cessation of growth and we see this in mammals we see this in other reptiles basically during a dry season or a wet uh, not a wet season during a dry season or during a um, winter or during a time of very low resources dinosaurs would stop growing for a little while
while. And then when you know the wet season came or there were more resources, they'd start growing again. So by counting these lines, almost like tree rings in a way, you can get a rough idea of how old the dinosaur was. So let's say you have you know two rings and then medullary bone, you could say, okay, this dinosaur was maybe about two years old when it was reproducing. And um, a pair of paleontologists from uh, Berkeley, they were both graduate students, Andrew Lee and Sarah Werning, they actually did this. They used medullary bone and they figured out how old each of the female dinosaurs was when they were reproducing. What they found was that they're all teenagers when they when they uh, started um, having sex, basically, that they, they hadn't uh, reached skeletal maturity yet. So this fit into a general idea that paleontologists have been accumulating over the past couple of years, that dinosaurs sort of lived fast and died, died young, that they had to uh, start reproducing relatively early in their in their lives uh, if they're going to leave any offspring altogether. In fact, most of the dinosaurs that we find, they're not babies and they're not the oldest adults. They're in this sub-adult sort of category um, that seems that after they went to this initial bottleneck, most of them never made it to be um, fully adult. So they, they, they had to start having sex early if they're going to leave any descendants behind. So it's clues like that that are kind of giving us new <laughs> insights that we never really had before into how these animals reproduced. A reasoning tool called extant phylogenetic bracketing also gives us some clues. Can you please explain what this is and how it helps to shed light on dinosaur sex? Sure. Um, so we know that birds are living dinosaurs. They're, they're the, the group that survived. And their closest living relatives, since all the other non-avian dinosaurs went extinct, all the things that we think of when we normally think of the term dinosaur, all those are gone. So the closest living relative to birds are crocodiles, alligators, caimans, things of that nature. So by looking at birds and looking at crocodiles, looking at the sort of um, features that they share in common, we can get an idea of the, the structures and the features and the traits that were present in dinosaurs, both behaviorally and anatomically. A good example of this is the question that you know comes up over and over again, <laughs> sort of understandably, you know, did um, male dinosaurs have the equivalent of a penis? Um, they probably did. Uh, we, we, we know this because alligators and crocodiles and caimans do. They have a, and uh, also many birds do, especially archaic birds, birds um, like ostriches and uh, tinamous, things like that. Not all birds do. Some birds don't. They, they pass um, semen to females through something given the cringe-inducing name cloacal kiss. So, so they pass their, their um, genetic material that way, but basal birds, birds that's sort of like the lower parts of the evolutionary tree, um, you know, ostriches and you know, ducks and waterfowl and, and things of that nature, they're differently equipped. So the fact that, um, you know, say an ostrich does, an alligator also has uh, an equivalent uh, phallus structure, we can say that dinosaurs most likely did as well. So uh, that gives us an idea of how mating would kind kind of work. You know, we know that they'd have to get into close proximity to each other. It doesn't tell us all the details of um, copulation per se. It doesn't give us all the details of that particular structure. I mean, there are some ducks out there that have um, you know, a phallus as long as their body. Uh, you know, it's kind of terrifying to think of that being true of something like a patasaurus, these 80-foot-long dinosaurs, there's no evidence to suggest this, no one's ever found this in the fossil record, but we can at least sort of constrain our ideas a little bit better better about the sort of reproductive equipment that they had using this bracketing idea, and it also works for a variety of other things. I mean, one of the reasons that we know that many dinosaurs had feathers and might have had uh, relatively flashy fle feathers uh, useful for display is that uh, as we go through the fossil record, 
birds have feathers, and all their closest relatives within this broader group called Solorosaurs also had feathers. So if it's present in you know, a member of Tyrannosaurs, a present member of this group of ostrich-like dinosaurs called uh, Ornithomimosaurs, you know, present in things like Velociraptor, if there's a individual or a species in each of these lineages that has feathers, we can see that feathers were rel relatively broadly um, distributed trait, and a lot of dinosaurs probably used these for display. So it's a little hard to imagine, just how did dinosaurs have sex? One answer was roughly. <laughs> yeah, um, paleopathology got its start about a century or so ago, and in a systematic way, I mean, people noticed sort of damage to, to various bones, and that was one of these early ideas that uh, you'd look at um, dinosaur tail bones, and they would seem to have uh, you know stress fractures in them. So uh, <laughs> yeah, that, that would be the sort of obvious. Um, choice, I guess, to some that would spring to mind is that they must have, you know, broken their tails when, uh, you know, a male was trying to mount the, the female. Not too much detail was ever uh, put forward about this uh, hypothesis, but it's it's one of um, various hypotheses that were put forward in this sort of early dilettante phase, as some call it, of, of paleontology, where basically you'd see a phenomenon and just come up with, you know, any plausible explanation. I mean, there are plenty of other ones, like, you know, dinosaurs went extinct because they had cataracts or, um, you know, they all sexually transmitted diseases or they had growth imbalances or things like that. So the rough dinosaur sex idea kind of, uh, yeah, inspired by broken tailbones, but not really supported by evidence, I'm sorry to say. Other theories are based on more rigorous modeling studies. Digital models of dinosaurs' range of motion, based on their skeletal structures, are also helping us to understand more about dinosaur mating behavior. For instance, Brian's friend, paleontologist Heinrich Mallison, created such a model for a kind of dinosaur called Cantrosaurus. Think Stegosaurus, but spikier. He discovered that the previously held assumption that Cantrosaurus employed um, dinosaur doggy style has to be false. Kentrosaurus hips don't have the flexibility to allow a male to mount a female in that position. Brian and Mallison are now working on a paper considering potential alternative techniques. For other kinds of dinosaurs, though, mounting from behind might have been perfectly doable. Biomechanics expert um, years ago looked uh, at how would dinosaurs sort of support themselves during, during mating, and what he determined was it really wasn't all that different from walking because during the step cycle, the animal, however many tons it is, at a certain point would be having two legs off the ground or would be, um, you know, walking away where the, the weight would shift. So the sort of strength that you would need to walk is the same sort of strength that you would need to, you know, sort of bear the heavy weight of a male dinosaur sort of resting over the, the legs and hips. I mean, if you look at a lot of these things, especially the biggest dinosaurs, uh, sauropods and things like Stegosaurus and some of the Ceratopsians, they had these really stout, heavy um, hind limbs because, I mean, that's what it was for, so they'd be able to actually move and walk. And his conclusion was that, you know, if dinosaurs could walk, they could also mate. So it's implausible sort of as it seems. Uh, from a biomechanical perspective, it makes sense. The same sort of strength that you need to be able to just move around is the same sort of strength you would need to um, copulate. Is there anything we know about mating rituals or selection criteria? 
A little bit. A little bit. It, it depends actually on one of the, a lot of the bizarre structures that we see um, on dinosaurs, what they actually are, why they evolved. I mean, this is a debated area. We don't uh, have necessarily hard knowledge about this, but if you think about the horns of something like Triceratops or the plates on Stegosaurus or even the sort of bumps and knobs on the uh, skulls of carnivores like Allosaurus and Tyrannosaurus rex even, um, all these things are bizarre, flashy, showy structures. Um, and there's been a debate going on right now about whether these things are to recognize other members of the same species, whether they were attractive to mates or not. Um, it's sort of open to uh, questioning right now. Some people argue that, you know, it's mostly so if you see another Triceratops sort of, you know, across the, uh, the grassland, you can easily identify them. Um, other people say, well, that's something where it'd be... Um, that these structures are, are basically used to show I'm the, the biggest, sexiest, healthiest individual. Uh, a lot of sort of mathematics and modeling and trying to figure out, okay, are all these structures converging on the same sort of shape? Are they diverging in shape? Why would they do that? There's a lot of theory in, in, involved in this. Um, you know, I, I, given the evolutionary history and the complexity of dinosaurs, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure that uh, they had some kind of display, that they strutted a bit, that they showed off, that they you know, used some of these flashy structures to sort of um, display their, their vigor and, and their health, possibly attract mates. But this, these are things that we can envision, but that we can't really know without a time machine. We can say this is a plausible idea or this is an implausible idea, but uh, you know, short of going back to the Cretaceous, it's, it's hard to say for certain. Dinosaur sex, when successful, led to dinosaur babies. What might those have been like? Yeah, well, we have a, a decent idea of what some dinosaur babies were like because some people have actually found uh, embryos and inf infants and hatchlings and young juveniles. Uh, most of these are herbivorous dinosaurs, but um, you know, we still, based upon the skeletons, they, they look like these cute little awkward things that have really big eyes and they're kind of oddly proportioned. It's almost like the way that you know a puppy or a kitten you know, generally looks like an adult, but they still have a lot of growing to do. We know dinosaurs change significantly as they aged. In terms of uh, body covering and, and, and fluffiness, amongst the various feathered dinosaur lineages that we know of, um, there, there are um, species that just have fuzz. There are species that have fuzz and sort of more complex feathers. There are ones that have these really elaborate ribbon-like tail feathers. There are dinosaurs that have feathers that are more like a modern bird's. Uh, so there's a variety of different feather types that appear in sort of different combinations. And very few of the non-avian dinosaurs actually were capable of doing any kind of gliding or flying that we know of so far. So aside from insulation, these must have been used for uh, some sort of display. And in terms of baby dinosaurs being fluffy and fuzzy, um, that might have very well been the case. I mean, uh, it, the, the big one that people would go back and forth um, about quite a bit, especially because they didn't want it to have feathers, was uh, Tyrannosaurus rex itself. It, it belongs to a lineage where someone had found a different species from China that had this fluffy coat of feathers. They said, well, if Tyrannosaurus, this group, has fuzz, then maybe T-Rex itself did, especially if it was a chick. Um, people kind of resisted this. They didn't want to think of Tyrannosaurus as a big chicken. But just last year, uh, another discovery in China, a larger 30-foot Tyrannosaur called Euteranus, was found with this kind of fuzzy, simple coating. So now we know it wasn't a matter of size either, that um, large carnivorous dinosaurs could be fluffy and actually kind of cute. They'd still probably run, your, run you down and try and rip you apart, but they'd look adorable while they were doing it. Paleontologists have found some evidence of dinosaur parenting behavior, too. For example, there was a great find in Mongolia of an oviraptor protecting a nest. 
Yeah, uh, well, those are some really fantastic fossils that you have these um, oviraptors, and I, I don't know yet whether it's been determined whether they were um, male or female, but you have these adult dinosaurs sort of laying uh, on top of the nest with their arms out in such a way that their feathers on their arms, and I'm pretty sure that they had feathers even though the, those weren't preserved on those nests, they would have, those feathers would have covered the eggs and sort of um, you know, protected them, helped regulate the temperature. So at least during this phase, you know, dinosaurs were very attentive parents. I mean, the most famous one, um, the one that really, I think, inspired a lot of people to start looking at this question was uh, Egg Mountain in Montana. That was uh, the find of the Myasaurus nesting ground, one of these big, bulky hadrosaurs um, where you have not only adults, but you have eggs, juveniles, hatchlings, uh, various life stages all in one place, and it seemed to indicate that the baby dinosaurs that they found there had uh, already hatched out, but had remained in the nest or remained in the area for a little while after that, so the parents likely looked after them, you know, we can't tell for sure, but it's, you know, a, a, a plausible hypothesis, but here, here's, here's the trick, is that dinosaurs seem to have been attentive to their nest, they might have been attentive to their young, but when we find juvenile dinosaurs or dinosaurs that have, uh, you know, beyond that hatching phase, we usually find them in groups by themselves, not mixed groups, not whole huge herds of, you know, everything from infants to old adults, but just juvenile dinosaurs together. There are finds of uh, Triceratops. There are like this. There are finds of uh, Ornithomimosaurs and uh, a few other dinosaur groups, even uh, some sauropods, a sauropod called uh, Alamosaurus, where you have these bone beds of dinosaurs of just about the same age. So what paleontologists like David Verricchio have uh, proposed is that this was a common component of sort of growing up as a dinosaur, is that, you know, your parents were would, you know, watch over you while you're an egg, maybe give you a little bit of care as a, a hatchling, but then you're generally on your own. And during that critical phase, when you're a young, relatively defenseless dinosaur that, you know, probably the big carnivores would have an easy time picking off, you hung out in groups with basically your own age bracket, and then later you'd either join a herd or you'd become solitary or do something else. So it seemed to have this, there's this, at least as far as we know now, there seems to be this common component to a dinosaur lifestyle. I was an avid dinosaur lover when I was a kid, and I'm sure I'm not alone on that one. For all of us who have been captivated by the idea of dinosaurs and paleontology in the field, can you share a little about what it's like to be out on a dig? Well, it's not Jurassic Park, I can tell you that much. I mean, that they may look really easy, just, you know, you brush off a little sand, you have a beautiful articulated skeleton. Uh, that doesn't really happen uh, out, out in the field. The typical day of field work, uh, it kind of depends on the crew you're with. I've been with crews that were kind of, you know, insane partiers where, you know, uh, bottles of cheap whiskey were passed around the campfire at night and people wouldn't want to crawl out of uh, their tents until relatively late in the morning. I've been uh, with camps that uh, alcohol was not allowed whatsoever and there's a very strict regimen. So it kind of depends on, on who you're with. But at least most of the time when I go out, uh, you wake up, you know, basically when the birds get you up or when the sunlight starts coming into your tent around, uh, you know, six o'clock in the morning, seven o'clock in the morning, you know, people make breakfast, get themselves together, you get your gear together, you, you know, apply your sunscreen, you make sure there are fresh batteries and your walkie-talkie in case you need to communicate. Um, 
And then once you, you pack your lunch, because you're not going to be coming back to uh, the campground until relatively late, and then usually either hike or uh, drive out to wherever the field site is. If you're in a quarry, that's nice, because then you can just sit in the shade. You can maybe set up a little bit of music, um, you know, take your breaks when, when you need to. But if you're prospecting, and that's really uh, the key part to paleontology in the field is, you know, actually finding fossils in the first place. If you're prospecting, that's a little bit tougher. You have to, you know, basically hike through badlands over rock exposures, sometimes over, you know, steep parts of the exposure, looking for any scrap of bone, anything coming out. And what you're really looking for are shards of bone sort of near the bottom of the hill, and you can follow those up to where they're coming out, and hopefully you'll see something like a leg bone or part of a hip or maybe part of a skull sort of jutting out. And what that tells you is that this isn't just a bone that's that's come out and degraded and fallen all over the place, that there's something in there that's actually going into the hill. There's something worth excavating that's still contained into the rock. And then you, know, you take a GPS, you mark its location, you take some notes, you take some photographs. Um, you know, if you're by yourself, obviously you need to want to communicate with the field leader and say, okay, I, f- I found this site. Does it look promising? Can we remove enough rock from the top of it to... Um, actually make getting this specimen worthwhile. So those decisions are made afterwards. So uh, you know, on a prospecting day, you spend your whole day doing this, and some days you don't find anything. I, I've spent uh, you know weeks looking, you know, just finding tiny scraps of bone and nothing else. And sometimes that's all that there is. And, you know, that's an important part of exploration as well. Sort of the negative results aside, you know, being able to look in a place and say, you know, there's not really much here. We should focus our attention elsewhere. And once that's done. Usually, uh, you know, five, six, or seven o'clock in the evening, um, you go back to camp. You know, strip off your gear. You know, put on a fresh shirt if you remember to, remember to bring one. You know, uh, help the camp make dinner, and then it's usually just you know hanging out and uh, reading papers, um, drinking, making a fire, and uh, you just do it all over again uh, the next day. Like I said, it varies from from. Uh, camp to camp, especially in terms of uh, the attitude and how much uh, of a party there is <laughs> every, every night. But uh, it, it's it's pretty difficult work. I mean, you have to be very mindful, especially about uh, you know, how hot it is and bringing enough water. You know, at the beginning of the day, I mean, you feel weighed down sort of like a pack mule because you have to <laughs> not only bring enough water that you think you need, but you need to make sure you bring emergency water in case you fall down or get into trouble and you know, keep an eye on weather. But really, it, it's a fantastic experience. It's absolutely wonderful to sort of walk through time and uh, in these beautiful, gorgeous Badlands uh, locations and look for traces of prehistoric life that um, you know, no one has really seen other than you. And once you find a bone, the really exciting thing is all the questions that uh, you know, come out of that. You know, what is this animal? What did it look like? How, how old was it? How did it actually live? You know, hopefully all those questions will get answered in the progress of research. The first part is just finding it. But it's impossible, at least for me, to find like, any piece of a dinosaur or other prehistoric organism and, and not immediately start thinking about all those questions. That's it for this installment of the Science in the City podcast. If you'd like to learn more about the subject of dinosaur sex, as well as other amorous animals, come see us on February 12th for the panel discussion Love and Lust in the Animal Kingdom. Tickets are available on our website, scienceinthecity.org. We hope to see you soon. Thanks for listening.